All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you and thank you so much for the time that we have here together today to study your word. I pray that it will produce fruit in our lives because your word is efficacious, it's powerful to bring about um, whatever it is uh, you set forth for it to do. I pray that uh, our hearts will just be renewed, uh, both in terms of how we walk for the rest of this week, how we read our Bibles this week, and how we think of you and your creation in general. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Uh, all right. So I'm going to stick to script even more this week than I did last week, and uh, we'll get through this. So we are starting pre-Leviticus now. Last week was just an introduction, and I said that uh, in order to really understand the book of Leviticus, you've got to do the groundwork of understanding what I'm calling pre-Leviticus. So you've got to understand its broader narrative context of Genesis and Exodus. It also helps to have an understanding of Numbers and Deuteronomy. And one of the reasons I gave, at least I, I, I tried to make this clear, uh, one of the reasons I gave for that was that the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, should be viewed as a unit. And it has that sort of that chiastic structure uh, that, we, that we looked at last week. And by the way, if you're, I know that, like I said, the slideshow was a train wreck. So if you get a chance to look at those slides, they're on the, uh, they're on the website. Uh, so that's why we're doing, um, that's why we're doing pre-Leviticus. And so we're going to have to spend a few weeks talking about Genesis and Exodus, okay? Which I always love doing because, as I've said before, Genesis is my favorite book. I once heard someone say we shouldn't have favorite books of the Bible, but I, I don't know how to make that argument. I like Genesis. So, um, all right. So this is we're going to start uh, in Genesis to get the narrative context of Leviticus. And so in Genesis three, we read about how our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinfully rebelled against God, and they were exiled from His presence in the Garden of Eden. That's where God's presence was located. Being exiled from his presence in the tree of life that stood at the center of the garden meant that humans would now die. They could no longer reach out and eat from the tree of life and live forever. That's what Genesis 2.22 says. For beings who were created to live forever in God's presence and fellowship with him, this is the problem of their existence. This is the problem of our existence. Okay, And... What's resulted is that we now live in a sinful and corrupted state, not totally corrupt, we're totally depraved, but we're not as bad as we could be in every respect, but all parts of us are corrupted. We live in that sinful, corrupted state, separated from God, and then we die. And that's life. That's your life. That's the world we live in, except in Christ. And that's what the book of Leviticus is going to tell us about. The book of Leviticus tells the story of how God would rescue the whole world, not just human beings. In fact, really, human beings are just dirt people. Uh, we, we are just a part of this earth. We come from it, right? And uh, we were taken from it, and to it we, we return. Um, this comes out really nicely in our Ash Wednesday service, our liturgy for that. It's beautiful. But he's going to redeem the whole world. Um, you get a nice picture of this in, in Romans, uh, Romans 8, where uh, you find that all of creation is one day going to be delivered from the powers of sin and death. 
It's groaning along with Paul and, other, and the rest of us for that day of deliverance. So God's, the, Leviticus tells the story of how God's going to rescue the whole world from the fate of death that resulted from human sin. And using the tabernacle as a little replica of the Garden of Eden, God was telling his people, and really, again, the whole world, because Israel's mission was to the nations, that he would graciously make a way for them to once again enter into his life-giving presence. Through the substitutionary sacrifices that they brought to the tabernacle, God's people could once again enter into his life-giving presence. The notion of substitution is present in the book of Leviticus. It's present in all of Scripture, but it's especially present in the book of Leviticus. The blood, the life of those sacrifices. Why, do, why would I say that, why would I talk about blood and then life? Why would I say that the, the life, make that connection between life and blood? I'm going to avoid saying the verse, but what? Can anyone remember what chapter of Genesis does this notion come out of? That, that blood and life are connected with one another. Chapter 9, the life, if you shed man's blood, right, your blood's going to be shed for the life is in the blood. Okay? So the blood, the life of those sacrifices that the Israelites brought to the tabernacle, well, that blood, that life was carried by the priest into God's presence. God's presence is in the tent, especially in the Holy of Holies. Well, that life is carried into God's presence by the priest. This is a very early image of uh, us in the arms of Christ, essentially. Our, our great high priest. And the body of each of those sacrifices, so that was the blood, the body of each of those sacrifices, well, it gets transformed into smoke on the ascension altar. Yahweh's fire eats it. It translates that, uh, that flesh and fat into smoke that then ascends. It goes up into, as, as a pleasing aroma into the presence of God that exists above the tabernacle. He sits enthroned above it. How many of you have heard that the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, basically, the mercy seat is the footstool of God's throne? You all heard this? Yeah. He sits enthroned above it. So it makes sense that as that life, as, that, as the flesh that that blood was in, as that part of the animal, it gets translated into smoke. It makes sense, right? If the picture is that you're entering into God's presence again, that it gets translated into smoke that, trans, that goes up, it ascends into God's presence as a pleasing aroma, something God delights in. And so what I just gave you was the concise and 30,000-foot view of the book of Leviticus, okay? That's essentially what the book of Leviticus is all about. It's about God reversing uh, the fall, reversing what happened in Eden in Genesis chapter 3, and um, bringing humanity back into his presence again. And we're just going to see this, this theme of entering into God's presence more and more uh, as we study Leviticus and, and study pre-Leviticus, Genesis and Exodus. So to that end, we've got to do, we've got to do some, some of the legwork here. Um, my, my major goal for today is this, to demonstrate that when God created the world, he, he was creating a temple house in which he would live with his human creatures. 
So when God created the world, this is our, our thesis, and we'll spend the rest of our time trying to defend it. When God created the world, he's, he was creating a temple house in which he would live with his human creatures. Okay, that's, that's what we're going to try to talk about today. Now, you might be saying, golly, this is old hat for us here at Grace, because you're a bit nuts, and you tell us this every time you teach a class. <laughs> um, that's true. Uh, all of what I just said is true. Uh, but uh, what I'm going to try to do today is provide new information. So I'll just give you a, you know, a brief overview. In the past, we've talked about some of the parallels between the tabernacle uh, and uh, in the temple and the early chapters of Genesis. And so we talked about how uh, the Garden uh, of Eden had its entrance in the east, right? And we talked about how there's a tree in the garden, uh, the tree of life and how the tabernacle also has its entrance in the east, okay? Um, if you're going to go into the garden because the entrance is in the east, you have to move westward. If you're at the tabernacle bringing a sacrifice and you're going to move into God's presence through your substitution, your, your animal that's substituted for you, it's, and it's life, it's blood. And by the way, these animals are without blemish. I mean, just think about that for a second. Um, it's, it's holiness that's, that's uh, something that's, that's clean, unblemished, that's going into God's presence. These animals are an early picture of Christ. But you're going to ha if you're going to go into God's presence, you're going to have to move westward. Yes? I was going to say, I've always found it curious that God shed the first blood for sacrifice in Genesis 3. We're going to talk about that in, in week four. That's right. Well, in fact, and so, um, go, well, let me say this real quick so I don't forget. Um, but the uh, fundamental to all of this, and we'll talk about this, but it's fundamental to all of these sacrifices is that they're given to us by God. In fact, so as Tiffany talks about, God sacrifices first uh, in Genesis 3 when he provides a covering for Adam and Eve. It's... Uh, this is the, the, the word kippur, atonement in, in Hebrew just means um, uh, covering. I mean, it has a wide range for its meaning, but at least covering is in the discussion most of the time. Um, so you've got uh, God providing this covering, this atonement for Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. Um, and then when you get, come to the sacrifices of Leviticus, well, well, gosh, even before that, who can think of a guy who goes to a mountain and has a sacrifice provided for him? Someone tell me, who's that? Abraham. Abraham. Yeah, Abraham, right? So that's sort of, that, that's a, a paradigm case of, of God providing a sacrifice. Um, Abraham knew this. He tells Isaac, he'll provide, he'll provide the lamb. Um, and so, um, and he provides a ram. That's sort of a curious um, bit of the text, but nonetheless. Um, but then uh, you fast forward to Leviticus, and then all of a sudden you find all these Israelites bringing these sacrifices to the tabernacle, and Yahweh says to them, like, hey, I give you these sacrifices. Like, he reminds them of this, and I think that's in chapter 17, if my brain's working rightly, but um, he explicitly comes out and says that these sacrifices are given to you by me. Okay. Uh, Kevin, you had something to say? Okay, thanks, sorry. Um, and that's how that's done. <laughs> so sorry. I'll, I'll let you do it next time, I'm sorry. Um, okay, so uh, 
so God's building this temple house. Why is this important to establish this, this cosmos, the world, as a temple house? Well, um, one, because that's just what Scripture teaches, and we'll, we'll see that today. Um, but two, it's, it helps us understand that all of reality is a place where God is to be worshipped, right? And not only that, but see, this is a, a I'm going off script, but if you look at these, these stories of, of the ancient Near East, these creation stories, these myths, uh, the Enuma Elish, uh, um, Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, to some degree, Atrahasis, some of these different ancient Near Eastern myths, it's interesting that they, their, their gods were, uh, in some cases, they explicitly create human beings to serve them. But our God, it was far different. You get a different picture. Now, lots and lots of what happens in Genesis mirrors, parallels, uh, in really neat ways, things that are going on in ancient Near Eastern myths. But the fundamental story and plot line is different. Yahweh doesn't create human beings for them to serve him as much as he creates them uh, so that he can serve them. I mean, if you think about just the garden, he, he puts Adam in the garden uh, and gives him everything he might want, everything that we might say is congenial to Adam's nature, that matches up well with his nature. He gives it to him. Um, he doesn't turn Adam into a slave, so to speak. He, he fulfills his nature, right? Um, anyway, um, okay, so th this is why it's important because uh, God is to be worshiped everywhere, um, but also we get a, a right picture of the God-human relationship when we understand it in the context of temple and sanctuary, okay, and sacrifice. Um, some people would say there's even a... We will not talk about this. I'm not prepared to talk about this. But there is something interesting about uh, a potential sacrifice taking place even before the fall, when Adam is put into a deep sleep. It's a death-like sleep. And then he's split open. His side is, is split open. Um, and uh, this is something very similar to what happens in, um, in uh, uh, the sacrifices in the Old Testament. They're cut in half or when a covenant is made. Um, anyway, uh, sacrifice takes place then, and that involved, uh, and just think of Abraham, right? These animals being split apart. But I'm getting back on script. So in order to make the case that the world was created as a temple, so we're going to have to look at five pieces or so of evidence today in support of that claim. That's our goal. Because a number of you have heard me say this, I'm going to be including some new information in this talk. So first, we're going to consider how people in the ancient Near Eastern world believed or held in their mind a strong analogy that the world was a temple or was temple-like. And this is important because the Hebrew Bible, which is our Old Testament, was written in that cultural context, so we should expect it to probably reflect it to some degree. It's not an alien, you know, uh, sort of entity in the ancient world. And uh, it was uh, written in that cultural context, and as we study the Bible, it seems to me pretty clear that the biblical authors shared at least to more or less their neighbors' view of the world in that way, in that it was a, 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 the world, the cosmos, should be understood as a temple. Okay? That's the first little thing we'll look at. The second thing we'll look at is how the Spirit of God, the Ruach Elohim, was present at both the creation of the world and in Bezalel, the chief architect of the tabernacle. <clears throat> We're going to see that the Spirit of God was involved 
in the creation of the world, in the construction of the tabernacle. And then in uh, the next thing we'll look at is that there's this really interesting six, what I'm calling a six plus one pattern of creation in Genesis 1 that gets, that shows up, I, I think, um, again, in the book of Exodus, you get this six plus one pattern with the construction of the tabernacle. So we'll look at what that, we'll get the, some of the details of that out. Uh, we're also going to, this is the fourth thing, um, we're going to look at just uh, a few passages of scripture that make the connection between the Garden of Eden and the tabernacle because they tell us that God walked in both places. Okay. A lot, of, a lot of scholars just see this as being an indication that we're supposed to see the uh, garden as a temple um, because God walked there, but yet he goes and walks in the tabernacle too later. And the tabernacle is just a little microcosm. It's supposed to be like um, creation. Um, and then uh, finally, and this will be the last piece of evidence we look at, is that uh, we'll, we'll just try to see how the tabernacle and the dry land both admitted of this tripartite division. They had three rooms in them, and how those divisions were marked by this graded holiness. So the, the divisions of the dry land are like this. You've got the outer lands, and if you look on your, the last page of your handout, you'll see this. Um, you've got the outer lands, then you have the land of Eden itself, and then you have the garden that's in the land of Eden. And um, so the outer lands would be lands like Havilah, Cush, um, uh, Nod, that we learn about in Genesis 4. So we'll, we'll look at that. So you've got the outer lands, the land of Eden, and then you've got the garden. Well, with the tabernacle, you've got, the, again, this tripartite division of courtyard, holy place, most holy place. Okay. Um, and I'm going to try to suggest to you that there's a graded holiness. The closer you move into the garden to where God's presence is, the holier it is, the holier you need to be. Um, and th I think that reality gets reflected in the book of Leviticus. Um, uh, this is why I don't know. I'm going to talk about it. I'm not going to say it now. So here, All right. So the first thing to note uh, about the ancient, before we begin looking at the parallels between the cosmos and tabernacle that appear in the Bible, um, is uh, uh, the ancient Near Eastern context that a lot of scholars uh, just seem to agree on this fact, and that is that in the, the mind of the ancient Mesopotamian or something um, person, there's a strong analogy between the cosmos and temples, especially between the creation of the world and the uh, construction of temples, the creation of the world and the construction of temples. They, the, the ancient mind pushes these two ideas together. John Walton, in uh, his book, uh, he provides a helpful example of this in his book, The Lost World of Genesis 1. I don't endorse everything John Walton says, but I think basically that book is a, it's a pretty good summary of the scholarly consensus uh, uh, on the you know, early chapters of Genesis and the, the ancient um, Hebrew uh, and ancient Near Eastern worldview more generally. Um, so Walton notes that during the building of an ancient Mesopotamian temple, the following prayer was given during the, uh, the dedication of the temple's foundation stone. So think of that as maybe something like its uh, cornerstone or something. Um, and here it is. I, I, do I have them, uh, these uh, certain words underlined in your handouts? I do. On my, okay, good. No holy house, no house of the gods had been built in a pure place. No reed had come forth. No tree had been created. No brick had been laid. No mold had been created. This may have been chanted, by the way. I don't know. Um, you, you all want me to chant it? 
No house had been built. No settlement. No, I'm just kidding. No settlement had been founded. Nippur had not been built. Echor had not been created. Yorick had not been built. Aana had not been created. The depths, that's something that comes up in Genesis. That's the Tehom, the, the deep. The depths had not been built. Eridu had not been created. No holy house, no house of the gods, no dwelling for them had been created. All the world was sea. The spring in the midst of the sea was only a channel. Then Eridu was built. I can't pronounce that. Um, I looked it up, but I've forgotten how to pronounce it now. But that place was created. So uh, what's significant about Eridu and um, this other place is that Eridu was a Sumerian city that was sort of popular for this conglomeration of, uh, uh, it was this conglomeration of cities, I should say, that was uh, uh, sort of founded around lots of temples. And then this other place, uh, Asija, I think is how I remember hearing it pronounced. Um, But uh, that itself was just an important temple in Babylon. Okay, Um, which is interesting because if you look like, this, this prayer opens with no holy house, no house of the gods, and then it ends by talking about houses of God. In between, you have all this conversation about the creation of the world. It's like there's this inclusio, these bookends to this prayer, uh, this ancient Mesopotamian prayer. They're try- if you see something like that, then the thought should be like they're trying to communicate something really important about temples here, right? And so they're making a connection between this, the creation of these earthly temples and the creation of the world. And this is what, uh, this is what John Walton uh, says on, about this. He says, in a prayer dedicated uh, to, this is on your handout, in a, prayer, in a prayer to dedicate the foundation brick of the temple, it is obvious that the cosmos and temple were conceived together and thus are virtually simultaneous in their origin, end quote. Now, as we study the Old Testament, it's apparent in a number of places that ancient, that ancient Israelites thought of the world along similar lines. In particular, they understood God's creative activity at the beginning of history to be analogous to his building a holy house or a temple or tabernacle in which he would live with his human creatures. And I've got a quote here on your handouts from Michael Morales. I'll tell you, this, is, this book is, might be worth its weight in gold if you're interested in understanding that big picture of Leviticus. You should get it. I've got the citation there. But this is what he writes. He says, In the Hebrew Bible, creation is likened to a tabernacle, a tent, pitched by God. Psalm 104.2, Job 9.8, Isaiah 40.22. And by the way, there are many others. I've covered some of those, some other ones in, in, class with, in other classes with you. Or to a house established with pillars, windows, and doors. The cosmos being thought of as a three-decked story or three-story house of heaven, earth, and sea. As the main character of Genesis 1, God is indeed portrayed as something of a workman who builds his house, inspects, pronounces upon his work, and then takes his Sabbath rest. The house itself, inasmuch as it is a house of God, being a temple, end quote. We're going to spend some time either next week or the following week talking about just beefing up this idea that the cosmos is a temple by talking about Sabbath rest. When, when God rests someplace in the Bible, he rests in a temple. He rests in his house, but remember, God's house is a temple. Okay? And let me ask you this. Does anyone know what piece of furniture God rests on? It's in his house. It's a piece of furniture in his house. We think of resting, when we take a rest, we think of resting in our beds. We think of resting on our couches. Where do you think God rests?
A throne. Yeah, a throne. That's where God rests. Um, God is the one, the, the one being who truly rests in power. Um, we'll look at that. So, but notice how Morales, in this uh, quote here I have, that he points out the three-story nature of God's house of the cosmos. <clears throat> Similarly, the tabernacle had that, as I've told you a minute ago, that three-story or three-room structure, courtyard, holy place, and most holy place. That helps establish a connection between creation and tabernacle. Another scholar, James Hamilton, uh, who's just down the road at Southern Seminary, and by the way, his book is also excellent. Um, I think I've got the, yeah, I've got the citation there. It's called Typology, Understanding the Bible's Promise-Shaped Patterns. He's great. You ought to you just get that book and read it. It's really excellent. It really is. Um, but listen to what he has to say on this topic. In my view, Moses, author of Genesis, also wrote the narratives in Exodus concerning the instructions for and the building of the tabernacle. And he intended to communicate the correspondences we see in those narratives between creation and tabernacle. Later, biblical authors noticed these correspondences and spoke of creation as a cosmic temple. For instance, in Psalm 78:69, and this is out of the ESV, Asaph says of the Lord, quote, He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever, end quote. The comparison of the sanctuary, the temple with the heavens and the earth reflects the view that the temple, which replaced and was modeled on the tabernacle, is a small-scale replica of the cosmos, a microcosm. And that ends Hamilton's quote. So what's the point of, of this little bit of evidence about the ancient Near Eastern context and the old, broader Old Testament context um, of create, creation and tabernacle? Well, it's just this, that to repeat it, because I want to make sure we get these points. When God created the world, he was building a house for him and his human creatures. They were going to rest in it together. The human beings weren't going to, oh, this is so great, human beings weren't going to, this has a lot ugh, um, to say about really uh, the Christian view of the future. We will rest in power too, um, fully one day. We already do. Um, we're already seated in heavenly places, but we will, will fully rest in power one day because um, we will be ruling the world alongside of uh, our older brother Jesus and Yahweh the Father. Um, so uh, it just because God's house is a temple, it just stands to reason that the world, um, in as much as it's God's house, is, is a temple. Okay, so let's turn to our second little piece of evidence um, in support of our claim that the cosmos is a giant temple. So the, the Ruach Elohim, the, the wind, the spirit, or the breath of God, all those would be fine translations for that Hebrew phrase, appears in Genesis 1-2, and that spirit or wind or breath of God is associated with God's creative activity. God spoke the world into existence using his spirit or breath as he spoke. Similarly, the, that same spirit was operative in Bezalel, the chief architect of the tabernacle, as he helped construct the tabernacle. So the references for this should be on your handout there. Um, Exodus 31, 3, 35, and, uh, and verse 31. Um, chapter 35, verse 31. And I have one of the passages from Exodus on the right-hand side of that page. Um, Proverbs 3, 19 through 20 describes Yahweh as creating the world according to these three, um, uh, you might say, characteristics or attributes, but wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. Quote, Yahweh, by his wisdom, founded the earth. He established the heavens by understanding. By his knowledge, the deeps were broken. 
there's another connection with the ancient Near Eastern world there. The Psalms, are, or the Psalms and Proverbs both are, are replete with that. Um, similarly, the same three words are used to describe Bezalel as he constructs the tabernacle in Exodus 31.3. He's filled with that spirit of God, that spirit of God that functions in a certain kind of way. And I quote, and I have filled him with the spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills, end quote. So what's the point of this piece of evidence? Well, God's spirit that's rich in wisdom, knowledge, and understanding played a role in creating the world as a whole and the house of the tabernacle. That's the point. There's a connection there. Some of these may not be as obvious as the other connections that we've talked about in, in previous classes, but th this just helps. Um, it's, it's an argument from cumulative weight. That's what it is. You have to take all the variables, assign them their weights, uh, and then see what pops out the other side of the equation. And I think the, the deliverance of that equation is that uh, the world is um, a sacred tabernacle, which makes every human being, even non-Christians, priests. But as we'll, as we'll see, um, gosh, there are so many connections here. But like, look, um, What's one way God describes what will happen to, rebelli uh, what will happen to rebellious people um, at the end of the age? He won't destroy them with water. How's he going to destroy them? With fire. They're going to be consumed, utterly destroyed. Um, there's a picture of this in the book of Leviticus. Uh, Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, they become rebellious priests. They mess with the liturgy. They try to take on a role, at least I think probably something like this is what is going on. Maybe we'll talk more in depth about this when we get to uh, chapters 8 through 9 um, and 10. But um, uh, they, they mess with the liturgy, just as Adam and Eve mess with the liturgy, uh, the liturgy of the garden. They mess with the liturgy, and what happens to them? Does anyone remember? They get consumed with Yahweh's fire, and they have to be carried out by some folks outside the camp. If you're a human being, you're a priest. You're either a faithful priest, and you're only a faithful priest as a gift in Christ, or you're a rebellious priest. If you're a faithful priest in Christ, you'll be brought into God's holy house and fed at his table, just like the Levitical priests were. If you're a rebellious priest, you'll be consumed by Yahweh's fire. That's, was, that was true then, and that's true now. That will be true at the end of the age. These images about people being burned up at the end of the age aren't divorced from what's happening in the book of Leviticus. Uh, because They're not divorced from what's happening in Leviticus because Leviticus isn't divorced from what's happening in Genesis. History is unified, and Scripture gives us that unified, solitary picture, so to speak, if we know how to read it and see it. Okay. Um, so, let's see here. What, where, where are we? Um, yeah, so now we're going to move on to our, our uh, fourth, I think, piece of evidence. Um, mm. No, this is our third. So, some scholars have suggested that the seven speeches from God to Moses in Exodus 25-31, so those chapters, chapters 25-31, regarding the construction of the tabernacle, correspond roughly to the seven-day structure of Genesis 
uh, seven-day structure of creation in Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3. And that is, it takes six days in those early chapters of Genesis. It takes six days for God to speak the world into existence, Genesis 1. Similarly, in Exodus 25 through 31, it takes six speeches of God to lay down the instructions for creating the microcosm, the tabernacle. Now, what's really interesting about these um, speeches is that in Genesis, you've got these six days. So you've got different speeches on six different days. Interestingly, if you count the speeches, um, you could, because, so these speeches are often, I think I have this on your, um, the ones in Exodus uh, uh, are, are set off by the phrase, the Lord said to Moses. That's how you can um, see when a particular speech starts in the text. Okay, the Lord said to Moses. Um, let me, where's my... In Genesis, they're set off. So in verse 3, for example, and God said, verse 6, and God said, verse 9, and God said, verse 11, and God said. These and God saids all occur on different days, except um, on uh, the third day, you have two different speeches. So you don't get this nice six speeches like you do in, uh, in Exodus 25 through 31, but you do get, uh, at least not in our English translations, um, but, uh, but nonetheless, you do get six speeches, or you do get, um, you get speeches on six different days. Now, um, but here's, here's the thing that becomes important. What you have in Genesis are these uh, six days with these various speeches of God creating the world. In Exodus 25 through 31, you have these various speeches to Moses, um, the Lord said to Moses, that's, and I have them all listed here where you can see where they, they, they begin. And um, there are six of those. Bo in both cases, both in Genesis and in Exodus 25 through 31, those, the, those six days are followed by Sabbath rest. In uh, Exodus 25 through 31, those six speeches are followed by Sabbath rest. After the idea is that when the tabernacle in Exodus, when the tabernacle uh, has been constructed, it's completed, Yahweh's resting and so are his people. That's the idea. And this is, again, this makes sense if the tabernacle is a little microcosm, a little bitty world that's supposed to remind us of what's going on in the world uh, in Genesis. Does that make sense? I'll lay that out clearly. Okay. So, just to summarize this idea, the construction of the tabernacle is analogous to the construction of the cosmos because they both take the form of a six plus one pattern. And in each case, the result of God's creative speech is that God and his people rest together. This was the whole point, if you read the book of Deuteronomy, why God was bringing the people into the land. He was going to set up a central place where he would live among them, and they were going to finally experience rest. So when they're, they're on the other side of the Jordan about to go into the promised land, God's reminding them, hey, you're, you're here, hanging out here, just outside of this land in which I'm going to bring you to give you rest, right? That's the goal of creation. That's your goal. That's my goal as a human being, as a priest of God. It's to rest with Yahweh, to rest as a ruler. The world doesn't belong to pagans. The world belongs to us. So, so far, we've been looking at parallels between creation in general and the tabernacle. 
Now I now want to ratchet down a bit and focus on some of the parallels between the dry land itself and the Garden of Eden and the Tabernacle, those three entities. Now, let me get a drink here. The, these parallels will help us see, <clears throat> excuse me, these, these parallels will help us see that the cosmos um, as a tabernacle or temple of Yahweh and the Garden of Eden is something like or analogous to like a temple sanctuary, maybe like the Holy of Holies in Israel's tabernacle. So here's our fourth piece of evidence. God walked in both Eden and later the tabernacle and temple. G.K. Beale writes, and this is uh, also on your handout, this is his, from his book, God Dwells Among Us. He says, the seemingly casual mention of God walking in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3.8 is rich with connotations that suggest God's presence in the temple. In Leviticus 26, the Lord promises that he will walk among them, that's among the Israelites, and be their God in verse 12. Deuteronomy 23, the Lord commands the Israelites to keep their camp holy because he walks in the midst of their camp. Deuteronomy 23, 14. When David plans to build a temple in 2 Samuel 7, the Lord reminds him that I have been walking about in a tent, that is the tabernacle, for my dwelling. 2 Samuel 7, 6. In a similar manner, the Lord is walking in Eden, Genesis 3, 8, because Eden itself was the temple and dwelling place of God, end quote. Let's move on to our fifth piece of evidence. Let me see how I'm doing on time. Okay, this, I'll get through this in hopefully three minutes or something. We noted earlier that the cosmos as a whole had a tripartite division of heavens, land, and sea. The dry land itself also has this tripartite division of garden, Eden, and outer lands. For example, Nod, Havilah, Cush, and so on. These rooms of the dry land correspond roughly to the three rooms of the tabernacles, we can see, uh, and we can see this in part because of the graded holiness involved in each. And here's how I'm going to try to make my case for this graded holiness. Uh, I'll just let the cat out of the bag and tell you, I'm not fully convinced of this, but I, I, I'm close to being fully convinced that something like this is going on. So it's well known that only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies once a year. And he could only do that after an extensive cleansing rite, and that happens in Leviticus chapter 16. However, the other priests could regularly enter the holy place, eat the bread of the presence, and so on. But late Israelites could never enter beyond the courtyard. They could not go into the holy place or the most holy place. <clears throat> uh, the courtyard being the place where they brought their sacrifices to the priests. Uh, and actually, they probably, Israelites probably slaughtered some of their own sacrifices. And this is because I want to maintain that there's a graded holiness to the tabernacle due to God's presence being concentrated in the Holy of Holies. We could see something uh, similar going on in the divisions of the dry land even after the fall. This comes out in a dialogue between God and Cain in Genesis 4. After Cain killed Abel, God drove Cain out of the land of Eden. And let's look at what he has to say. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. When you work the ground, it shall... I'm skipped a verse or two, I think. Uh, when, you, when you work the ground, it shall now, no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Nod just means wandering. 
God's presence was concentrated in the garden in a special way, such that he is said to have walked there like he walked in the tabernacle, uh, in the camp even uh, of the Israelites, but especially in the tabernacle. But he walked there with Adam and Eve. But here outside the garden in the land of Eden, I think they were still in the land of Eden, God's presence seems to still be present to a degree that it's not in the land of Nod because Cain acknowledges that when he leaves Eden, I'm going to say he's in Eden, when he leaves Eden, he says he's leaving God's presence. And I think as we, we continue to study Genesis, especially the fall narrative in Genesis 3, um, and as we continue to study Leviticus, I think we'll see that probably Cain and Abel were offering sacrifices to God at the gate or the entrance to the Garden of Eden. They're offering sacrifices there. Um, there there's a gate liturgy that has developed, offering sacrifices at the gate of the garden because they want to get back in there. They have a pattern. They know that sacrifice is the only way you get back into God's presence. God, God told them this, uh, essentially, when he sacrifices an animal, covers them, and sends them out. But also, I don't want us to give this away, but the cherubim, I think the cherubim, particularly their flaming, the, the flaming sword there, um, reveals uh, something about sacrifice and about entering into God's presence. I'm not going to give that away yet. It's coming in a later lesson. Um, so, <clears throat> but I think uh, all that to say that uh, we should understand that the story of Cain and Abel foreshadows the fact that we enter God's presence only through sacrifice and only through death and resurrection, essentially. Um, yeah, so Cain is to some degree still in God's presence, um, and he acknowledges as much when he says, ah, when you send me out of here, when I have to go east again, as my parents had to go east out of the garden, as I have to go east yet again to the land of Nod, I won't, be, I won't be in your face. I won't be in your presence. So I think there's a graded holiness to the land, potentially. And we see something similar going on in the tabernacle, it looks like. A graded holiness. Courtyards, holy. The, ho the holy place is holy. The holy of holies is crazy holy. Right? That's what I think is going on. But. Anyway, um, that's it. We're going to continue looking at some of this stuff next week. Anyone have any questions? And if you need to leave, feel free. But if you have questions, I'll be happy to field your questions for a few minutes. So. Thank you. Yep. Thank you all so much.